All right, if you want to open up to Luke chapter 15, Gospel of Luke. I went to, uh, to college in Indiana, and I went to play baseball. And I got there, and I realized you also have to take classes in college. And, um, you know, didn't really know what I was getting into, so I wanted to say, hey, let, let me take, like, the easiest classes I could find. You know, I'd heard rumors of, like, underwater basket weaving, those types of things. And I had to take an art class, so I'm, like, not creative at all. Um, I draw in stick figures, and I was like, oh, I don't want uh, to do something like that. I, and I found out there was an art history class. And I was like, that sounds interesting. I just go and learn about stuff other people created throughout history. That'll be an easy class. And... Um, so I signed up for that class, and it ended up being uh, like my favorite class in all of college. I just fell in love with, uh, with art throughout the ages, throughout history, and uh, was in, like surprised, like pleasantly surprised with how interesting it was, and I like history and like theology, and so there was all, like so much of art that has been created has been created by, by the church and by, by Christian thinkers. And um, there was one painting in particular I remember, um, like doing, we kind of like did this case study on, and it was uh, a painting by Rembrandt, who was um, a Dutch artist during the Dutch Golden Age of the 17th century. And he painted um, probably like, there were like 300 pieces he's really known for. But later in life, his most famous painting is called The Return of the Prodigal Son. You have probably seen this before. Uh, this is a Rembrandt, and it is now living in um, a museum in St. Petersburg. Um, and it's, it's just like, uh, it, it, like, as soon as you see it style-wise, you know, this is Rembrandt, if you know anything about art, the way that he uses darkness and light. Um, and what's interesting about this, this picture, um, Henry Nowen, the great author and uh, priest, um, has written a book that was inspired by the story of the prodigal son and by this picture, he got to go to St. Petersburg and just sat in front of this picture for hours and took it all in and uh, was, was just moved by, by it because what this picture communicates, Rembrandt is communicating really the darkness of the human experience illuminated by the tenderness of God or the tenderness of the Father. So the, the, the weary and sinful uh, mankind finds shelter in the Father here and moves from the darkness into the light. And the mercy and grace of God is illuminated in this moment where they're reconciled together. And it, it, it's, a, it, it's a painting that Rembrandt is like communicating his spirituality. Um, but what's, what's also amazing is this is a story that's really old. This is a story from the Gospel of Luke the prodigal son. This is ancient wisdom. And the story of the prodigal son communicates something about the human condition. It communicates something about who God is, what the heart of our father is like. And it resonates with people throughout the centuries. It, like when, by the time he gets to Rem, Rembrandt, it's, you know, 1,600 years later, he's creating this piece that he becomes, that is just world famous. And here we are in the year 2024, looking at this story that has resonated with so many people that communicates something about who we are and who God is. And I want to look at this story in Luke chapter 15 as we're in this uh, series about the parables, at this old story 
this sacred story, this ancient story. And my hope is that as we read it, we uh, would, would um, come to a, a more profound understanding of God's love for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your word. As we open it today, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us and inspire us. You would reveal things inside of us that need to be brought to light. You would change us to be more like you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Luke 15, verse 11. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. I love how Jesus opens the story with that. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. You've probably heard this story before, even if you haven't like grown up around church, the story of the prodigal son. This younger son wants his inheritance. He goes out and he spends it lavishly. Uh, the prodigal means to spend lavishly, by the way. He receives his inheritance. He goes out and spends it lavishly. Now, when we read this story, we think um, that makes sense. Because in our culture, you go to college to play baseball, right? Like, you leave the house. And there's kind of this, like, assumption that you, like, sow your wild oats and like, you go find yourself, and you, you go try things. And, and so, like, we're reading this from, like, our, you know, our context where it's like, well, that makes sense. Like, you leave the house, and you go, and, you know. But in the first century, that's not the case. In the first century, in this, like, strong group culture, in these small towns where Jesus is living, you don't go out and sow your wild oats. Like, you, you have a huge obligation to the whole family with your life. And so it's a shocking story for Jesus' context because people don't do this. Absolutely, you do not do this. The second thing is to request an inheritance in this context is a very intense request because it's loaded with a meaning of saying, I know I'm not supposed to get this until you are dead, so I would rather have it than have a relationship with you. I would rather have my inheritance before you're dead. It's a slap in the face to the Father. That's something that's hard for us to understand too because like we have inheritance, it's different now. You know, like you're like, maybe you're like me and it's like, how do I afford a, a house in Phoenix? And your father is like, well, if you want some of your inheritance now. Like, like, there's no issue of like, I only get this when I'm dead. But the very request is him saying, I value the resources more than the relationship. So that's a slap in the father's face. As inheritances were divvied out in this context, the oldest brother, the oldest brother would get two-thirds of the inheritance. And the, the remaining third of the inheritance would be passed down to all the other brothers, so it's not like you get like one-third. If you have like three brothers, you're getting like half of that one-third because the older brother's getting everything, which doesn't really seem fair either. The older brother gets two-thirds of this. The younger brother, he's only getting a third. And so like there's, there's an interesting dynamic going on here. The inheritance was property. It says they 
They divided the property between them. And property for this context was incredibly sacred because it had been passed down for years and generations and generations. And what does he do with the property? He liquidates it. He cashes it in. His family's property. This is another just slap in the face to his father and to his family. He says, I know this land has been in our family for generations, and I know it's supposed to be stewarded by us and entrusted to those who come behind, but because of my desires and my, my vision for my life, I'm cutting that off here, and I'm selling this outside of the family. In this strong group culture, this would have been incredibly scandalous. And so the father, as this story starts, receives the slap in the face. His son wants the inheritance, basically saying, I'd, I'd rather you be dead. I just want the resources. And then they take, he takes his inheritance, which is this uh, uh, legacy for his family, and he liquidates it, and he leaves. If you were the father in this situation, what would you do? And if you were the father in the first century context, because what the father does here is not typical of what would have happened. The father decides that even in the midst of getting the slap in the face, he can't control the son and he can't change the son because that's not in his nature. So he doesn't override the will of his son. He lets his son go. He lets his son make this decision even as it's painful for him and the family around him, and he lets him go. He doesn't override the son's will. And it says that he set off for a distant country and he squandered his wealth with wild living. This wasn't just going to college and partying. This is he lost the family inheritance. He spent it lavishly on himself on his own pleasure, on his own desires, on his own inward focus. This is an intense moment as Jesus starts to tell this story. Verse 14 says, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. Uh-oh. So he went and hired himself out as a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. So he's basically indentured himself to another person. He goes from, you know, inheriting this amazing inheritance to now almost becoming like a slave. And he, he's with the pigs, which we think, oh, that's gross, that's dirty. For the Jewish context, that would have been incredibly offensive. And this is where he ends up, feeding with, in the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. This is like them, Jesus meaning he's hit rock bottom. It's about the worst situation you can find yourself in. And like we, we read that and we're like, man, it's kind of reap what you sow, right? Like this guy's made these decisions and he's spent all this and this is where he's at now. Like he's hit rock bottom. That's what happens. And, and as you read that, like you, you're, you're hearing the story and you're, you're, you're realizing like as he gets to this moment, it's all self-inflicted, right? Like it's all his decision that has got him here. 
And who knows why? Like, the, he, the, the relationship with his dad must have been broken before him. He doesn't just go out and set out to do this one day. Like, who knows what is in his past? But all of this is self-inflicted. It's caused by his own selfishness. It's caused because he abandoned his obligation to the family. As the younger son, to take care of his father in his old age, he's abandoned all of that. He's only thinking of himself, and he wants freedom to just be himself. And this is where he ends up. Wendell Berry is an author. He was a, a, a great American novelist. Um, he's actually a farmer from Kentucky. And uh, has written a number of books about really just kind of speaking into our culture. And uh, we, we live in a very individualistic society. We live in a culture that says, you know, pursue, pursue your personal freedom. Um, and and uh, he... he he writes about, you know, that's okay, but there's huge consequences because of that. When we just pursue our own, our, our own self and our own freedom, he says this in his book, The Hidden Wound, that our present idea of freedom is only the freedom to do as we please, and we sell ourselves to it. But that is a freedom dependent upon affluence and indulgence which is in turn dependent upon the rapid consumption of exhaustible supplies. The other kind of freedom is the freedom to take care of ourselves and each other. The freedom of affluence and indulgence opposes and contradicts the freedom of community life. And you see that here with this younger son. He wants his freedom and it's the freedom of indulgence and affluence in a certain type of life. But as he pursues that, he breaks these relationships that are so important to him. And the people who love him so much breaks that because that pursuit of freedom destroys community. And it destroys relationships. Martin Luther, the great reformer, talks about our self and our freedom he says, a Christian lives not in himself, or not for himself, but in Christ, or for Christ, and in his neighbor, for his neighbor. He lives in Christ through faith, and in his neighbor through love. Not in himself, but for something else. This is what it means, as a follower of Jesus, who has been transformed by the gospel, our life is, is no longer our own, it is God's. And life is lived in God. And that has ramifications for our relationships. I was uh, at um, a conference a couple weeks ago for our denomination um, in, in a theology class because the first time I went to college it was for baseball. So there's like theological training that has to take place. But we, we were talking about, you know, like you know, our denomination comes out of like German pietism and the Swedish Lutheran and, you know, kind of going through this, this list of, of, uh, of how we, we act, how we act and, and, you know, like what does it mean to, 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 to be saved, to, to have a, that receive salvation from the Lord? But then how does that play out as we live? Like what does holiness look like? What does sanctification look like? And this Martin Luther quote came up and as we were talking through this class, I was reading and came across this, uh, this thought about what Martin Luther was saying. So this is commentary on what he has just said. And it's by this man named Miroslav Volf. And he says this about the self and about freedom. But why shouldn't one live in oneself? 
Isn't that what the self is supposed to do? Not really. It's just what the self likes to do. The self will lose itself if it simply lives in and for itself. Let me read that one more time. The self will lose itself if it simply lives in and for itself. It will seek only its own benefits. And the more it seeks its own benefits, the less satisfied it will become. That's the paradox of self-love. The more you fill the self, the more it echoes with the emptiness of unfulfillment. Living in itself and for itself, the self remains mysteriously unsatisfied and insatiable. Since God creates the self to be indwelled by Christ, the self will be fulfilled only if it draws the living water from the wellspring of love's infinity and passes it on to its neighbor. The paradox of true love is exactly the opposite of the paradox of self-love. When loving truly, the self moves outside of itself to dwell with God and neighbor, and only then is it truly home. And when this happens, we cross over from self-centeredness to genuine and fulfilling generosity. The self, if it's lived only for the self, it's like drinking salt water to quench your thirst. When we pursue things only for ourselves, it never quenches our thirst. It never meets our hunger. And if anything, it echoes back to us our emptiness. And that message is so hard because we are bombarded every single day by messages of what will truly fulfill us. And we pursue those things because we are hungry for, we are hungry for so many things. But only God can meet that hunger. This last week, um, Lent started on the Christian calendar. I grew up in a, a family that never really celebrated Lent, even though my dad was a pastor. We were non-denominational. And as I had started to study the Christian calendar, what the Christian calendar was put together for was to shape God's people in a way that's counterformation to the way the world shapes them. So we have this Christian calendar that, that operates differently than how the world's calendar operates, and it's supposed to shape us to be a certain kind of people. And so, like, Lent, oh, that's interesting. We're getting ready for Easter. Like, we had Ash Wednesday this week, and, like, there's these outward expressions of, of stuff that are happening inside of us. Like, all that's great. The, the thing I've always had trouble with Lent is fasting. Like, I'm all about the spiritual disciplines and exercises, except for fasting. Because I get hangry. And I don't think it's good for anybody, and not my relationship with God. But like this year, as I was kind of thinking about like, like Lent and, and knowing my own unhealthy relationship with food, I was like, you know what, I'm going to fast this year. It's a season of prayer, and this is something that I want to, and, and by the way, when you, when you tell people you're fasting, it doesn't count. So this story didn't count last week because I'm telling everyone I was fasting. Uh, but the idea is like you, we have these hungers and these yearnings and these longings and we're saying, no, we, we just want to be filled with God. So less of us and more of him. And as I went into a fast this week, which is not easy, going 24 hours without eating, I, I thought, you know what, if I drink a lot of coffee, it will kill my appetite. And here at Desert City, we have press cold brew 
pressed coffee cold brew, which is incredibly acidic. And so like I'm drinking all this coffee. By Thursday, I had no food in my system, but a lot of coffee. And I had like the worst stomach ache. I felt terrible. Like I've had issues in the past where doctors are like, you need to stop drinking coffee. And I drink that much. And so I probably should have given up coffee for Lent, but we're not. <laughs> it's not be crazy. So, <laughs> but it's like you, you have this like longing and this hunger, but when you fill like the stomach with the wrong thing, like it just, it makes you feel terrible. And the same thing happens with our soul. We have this longing and this hunger, and we try to fill it with all sorts of things that aren't actually going to meet the need that, that is our God who meets our need. We were created for living water. And when we are trying to, to it's all about ourself and filling ourselves, like we, we're filling it with things that will never satisfy. And, and here for the, this loss, the, the product, the, the story of the son, he, he has, out of his selfishness, tried to, to meet all of his needs in ways that have destroyed the relationships around him and have left him completely empty and now also empty-handed. Verse 17 says, when he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. He has hit rock bottom. And he realizes, man, even my, serv- my, my father's servants have it better. There was this awareness where he comes to his senses, but then something changes inside of him. You see this broken and contrite heart. You see this humility that says, gosh, this is, uh, this is terrible. I, I might as well go back, go back to my father, see if he will take me back. And then in one of the most powerful verses in all of Scripture, it tells us, verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, Returning to his father, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. The father was was longing for the son to come home and ran. And it says he had compassion, which, which is like something deep inside of him, was moved to action for his son and he runs. What's interesting is it it doesn't just mean he ran. The word actually means he raced. He raced. Do you race against yourself? Why did he race out to see his son? Recently, as I was reading um, some commentary on this passage, I came across this book by Kenneth Bailey called The Cross and the Prodigal. And Kenneth Bailey is just genius at talking about the context of the first century world and he brought up something in this story I had never heard before. He talked about this thing called the Kazaza Ceremony. The Kazaza, it's super fun to say. The Kazaza Ceremony is this, this Jewish ritual that especially in the first century that would happen in these small towns. And, and here's what would happen in the Kazaza Ceremony. That a Jewish village, which was this strong group culture, would have situations like this where, where someone would kind of go like off the rails and they would reject the community, they would reject the family, 
they would take resources and go spend it with the Greeks or spend it with the Romans. And at some point, after all this damage was done, they would end up saying, you know, they would get almost like pulled back home because they had realized they had made mistakes. This strong group culture, it was hard to get away from that culture. And so as they would come back home, after all of this damage had been caused, what, what the community would do would say, we are not letting you back in. Like, you, you have broken so many relationships here. And so to let you know that you are not coming back in, to symbolize how you have shattered these relationships, they would take clay pots and they would go out and meet the person returning with clay pots. And as they approached, they would shatter the clay pots. Because kazaza, it means to cut off. Because in the same way that you shatter these relationships, this symbolizes that it is broken. You cannot return. You cannot come back. The Kazaza ceremony symbolized this. And in this first century story, as Jesus tells it, the father races to see the son as the son is returning. Is it possible that the father knows everyone is so angry at what he's done? No one's going to accept him back. Yet the Father, the nature of the Father, is to race out ahead of everybody so that no one can break their pots. And he races to his child. And it says this in verse 21. The son said to the father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf calf, and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. The father throws a feast to communicate to everybody, you can't break pots here. I am restoring this relationship. And it's extravagant. The word prodigal means to spend lavishly. And here you have the father spending lavishly on his son who has returned. Spending resources and his grace and his mercy as Rembrandt shows in that painting. Mercy and grace has come into the light for this moment of reconciliation. There is no kazaza ceremony because the father has got there first. Verse 25, the story ends with the other person in the parable. It says, meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing, and so he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so the father went out and he pleaded with him. And he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so I could go and celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf with him. He doesn't even call him his brother, the son of yours. 
The father says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The prodigal father spends everything for his son. The older brother, we, we can understand that. Yeah, you have every right to be better. But what's interesting is even his relationship with the father isn't accurate. Like, the story opens with them both having their inheritance split up, which means he has come into his inheritance before his father has died as well. And now they're partners working on this land together, but he says, I have slaved for you. There's still this this wrong view of the father. That relationship is still not right. And he says, everything I, I have is yours. What this means for the older brother, that fattened calf that you killed, our prized calf, Bessie, you killed Bessie? Are you kidding me? It's now costing him out of his inheritance. And that, that's different when, because forgiveness has a cost. Grace has a cost. And it doesn't tell us what happens with the older brother. The father tells him, you know, everything I have is yours. But much like the younger brother, the father doesn't force him to do anything. And Jesus kind of leaves this tension in the air. Grace, grace is spent lavishly. Grace is hard to understand. There's a paradox to it because grace is free. It's a gift. Grace also costs infinite. I, I, I can't even explain the cost of grace how costly it is. It's something inside of you has to, to, to die to give it. And our God gave us grace through the cross. Like what that cost him so that we could be together with him. What that cost him so that he could raise the head of the Kazaza ceremony and welcome us back in. That expense, we will never understand the depths of what that cost him. But we have the cross to see it. It's free, and it's incredibly costly. And grace for us, it, we, we want people to receive it. It costs something. The paradox of grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one last theologian to quote today, talks about grace and the cost of it. The Father spends this lavishly. What tends to happen is we can take that for granted. We can take grace for granted. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he comes up with the idea of cheap grace and costly grace. Because when we receive grace, to come to a full understanding of what that costs the Father, it shapes us and our behavior. He says this, cheap grace, cheap grace is preaching for, the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Remember the son. He not only comes to his senses, but he humbly and broken with a contrite heart returns to the father. He turns around. Baptism without discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. It cheapens the gift. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell everything he has. It is the pearl of great price 
to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for those whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. That is costly grace. Grace costs our Father something. And we get to receive it gracefully, or get to receive it freely. Not in a cheap way, but in a way that understands the weight of what has been given to us. We're going to close our time with a meal that represents this grace, this good gift that the Father has sprinted out to meet us, to invite us to return. The Eucharist, it literally means the good gift or the good grace. It is this, this meal that, that reminds us of what Jesus has done for us. And so we come to the table knowing the cost of grace, which is the cross, that God's body was broken open, that his blood was poured out and shed so that we can receive grace. And so we come to the table today reminded of this story, receiving this story, proclaiming this story. And we want to invite you to the table today if you are a follower of Jesus. And then there's something else I want to do today as well. Over, we have, we have communion stations set up, two in the front, two in the back. We have a prayer wall over to my left and your right. And we're going to have people over there willing to pray. And maybe today, you need to return to the Father. Maybe today, you need to receive the grace that the Father offers. Maybe you've never done that before. This is the character of our Father. He'll, he'll, he'll not override your will but he invites you into an inheritance that will never spoil or fade. And, and, and maybe today you need to just come up and pray with someone to receive that. Then there's something else I want to do, and this is a little bit different. But we're in this season of prayer, praying for each other, interceding, bringing our petitions before God. And I want to invite you today, if in your family, in your immediate or extended family, you have a prodigal. You have someone who has run away that you long for them to return, that you would come up to the front and to receive prayer for that person, that the church could just lay hands on you, lift that person up, longing for God to call that person home. It could be a son, it could be a daughter, it could be a grandchild, it could be a parent, could be a cousin, a sibling, I don't know. But we want to invite you forward to lift that person up in prayer as well. So let me pray, and then we will move to time of communion and prayer. Lord, thank you so much for this day, for these old stories, these sacred stories, this ancient wisdom, which is your word. Lord, how you communicate to us who you are, what your nature is, what your character is. You communicate to us our human condition. Lord, and you desire for us to have life, life to the full, life that is eternal. We will spend so much time and energy trying to find that in things outside of you. Today, Lord, we want to return to you. And so in these moments, Lord, I pray that you would meet us in this place for some of us, that means coming to our senses and returning. 
that you would open up things inside of our soul and our heart to receive you. Lord, that we would not be prideful. And Lord, that you would give us a burden for those who are far from you, that we would live life with an urgency of your grace. Lord, we are so grateful for how good of a father you are. So we give you this time. May you meet us in this place today. Amen.